If you have a Bible, uh, let me invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, over the holiday season, we've been taking a break from our study of Hebrews, which, Lord willing, I intend to take up with the start of the semester, January 15th. Tonight, uh, we're going to consider Isaiah chapter 40. We want to consider, frankly, our God together. When you reflect on 2016... Perhaps for some anyway, what looms largest is the remembrance of disappointments, uh, disease, even for some death. And perhaps you were tempted to despair because of weakness, because of circumstances, because of failures amidst temptation and your own sinfulness. So much of what happens in life is beyond our control and beyond our ability to cope with it. Some of what happens to us is on account of uh, what we do with our lives. And not all of it is good. Maybe as you approach 2017, you're asking, what does my future hold? Is it going to be any better than my past? That's the situation Isaiah is speaking into when he speaks to them in Isaiah chapter 40. Now, uh, we already heard the call to worship, verses 9 through 11. He tells them to proclaim good news uh, to Jerusalem, to Zion, uh, that, that God is coming to his people like a shepherd who cares for the lambs and holds them close. And, and that God it has come in Jesus. That's the promise, Isaiah 41 to 11 speaks of the comfort of forgiveness, of the, of the valley being raised up and the mountain hill made low and the glory of the Lord being revealed. And that's fulfilled in the coming of Christ and consummated in his second coming. But between the promise of Isaiah 41 to 11 and its final fulfillment, there's going to be much suffering in the life of God's people. And he, in the rest of this chapter, is preparing them for that. In fact, it's going to be 700 years from their day before the glory of the Messiah is revealed and the good shepherd comes to die for the sins of his people. But first for Israel, things are going to get very ugly very quickly. Assyria... No friend of Israel is going to decimate the ten northern tribes. Later, the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar are going to decimate uh, the southern tribes. Lives are going to be wrecked. Families are going to be transplanted and torn apart. Communities will be split. Dreams will be crushed. Lives will be lost. God's kingdom will be assaulted. His people will suffer. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. And we do. And Jesus said, no servant is greater than his master. And think of the trouble he endured in this world. And so here's what the people are going to say in their own hearts Chapter 40, verse 27. We're going to read it in a moment, 12 to the end. But just look at verse 27. They're going to be saying this. And he puts it to them by way of a question. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, 
My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Their mood is uh, something like, anyway, uh, that you find in that novel Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut Jr. An important book comes to light. The book is entitled, What Can a Thoughtful Man Hope for Mankind on Earth? Given the experience of the last million years. And the chief character is anxious to read this book, of course. And when he does, he finds it doesn't take too long. For the whole book consists of one word. Nothing. Nothing. This is what you can hope for. Well, this is the kind of despairing attitude the people of God were having. Isn't God interested in us anymore? Where is he? When is he going to come? When are these promises going to be fulfilled? When will life get any better for the people of God? Did God get stumped by circumstance? Did he get sidetracked by some other plan? Did he get thwarted and stopped? Doesn't he know? Doesn't he care? Can he help? So what does the prophet do to speak into the, the minds and hearts of people tempted to that kind of despair? What does he do? He reasons with them about who God is, and he reminds them of who they are before that God. And I want you to think about these things tonight from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 and following. And I want you to pay close attention to who he is. And how he helps us. Let me invite you to give attention then to the word of God. Isaiah 40 beginning at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. And marked off the heavens with a span. And closed the dust of the earth in a measure. And weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? And taught him knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. And are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon will not suffice for fuel. Nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing. And emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Have you, uh, do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. And spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing. Makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. 
Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths grow faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait... For the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, your word stands forever. Grant that it would build us up in your holy truth and grace. Help us to know you. Be our teacher. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind? Here, Through a series of rhetorical questions, Isaiah invites us to use our imaginations and contemplate the greatness of God by comparison and contrast with creation, with the nations, with idols, with peoples and world leaders, and even with the stars. And so we want to think about these things. We want to think about God. And then we want to draw a few points of application towards the end. So let me highlight five things tonight from this passage. What does this tell us about God? It tells us that only God is incomparably huge, verses 12 through 14. First, he invites you to consider water. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Some of you know I spent a summer in college after my junior year uh, on the boardwalk in New Jersey. And nearly every day, I would go out on a jetty into the ocean and imagine uh, all of North America behind me. To my left, your left, uh, the coastline all the way up to Maine and beyond, and in the other direction, Florida and beyond. All that landmass behind me and all this water before me. Water so far uh, that, that was all you could see to the horizon point, some 20, maybe 30 miles at best on a clear day. 
And I would imagine being out in that water, bobbing, turning around, looking back upon America. Then I would turn back towards England in my mind and go out another 20 miles to the horizon point. And suddenly in every direction, all I see is water. You could do that 10 times and 20 times and 30 times. You could do that hundreds of times and still not reach England 3,000 miles away. There's just that much water between New Jersey and England. There's a lot of water in the earth. The average depth of the Atlantic Ocean is over 12,000 feet. The Pacific, nearly 14,000 feet deep on average. The Indian Ocean, nearly 13,000. The Arctic Ocean, roughly about 3,400 feet There's a place in the Pacific Ocean, the Mariana Trench, where it's estimated to be 35,994 feet deep. You could take Mount Everest, turn it upside down, sink it in that trench, and still cover it with a mile of water. There's a lot of water. And God says, I measure the water in the hollow of my hand. And with the breath of my hand, I mark off the heavens. I mark off the span of the heavens. Uh, astronomers say visible to the, from earth, the observable universe is a sphere of region with a radius of 46 billion light years. <coughs> Our Milky Way galaxy in which we live is roughly 100,000 light years in diameter. Our nearest sister galaxy, Andromeda, is roughly two and a half million light years away. There are probably a hundred billion galaxies or more in the observable universe. And he just marks it off with the span of his fingers. And think of the land, he says. Who encloses the dust of the earth in a measure and weighs the mountains in, on scales and the hills in a balance? We have small mountains here in the Ozarks. They're real mountains, I guess. Uh, Have you been to Colorado? Those are very impressive. My sister-in-law, Amanda, lives in Colorado Springs. She's made it her ambition to climb all the 14ers, the the mountaintops that that are higher than 14,000 feet. There are 53 of them in Colorado. And God just weighs them all on a kitchen scale. God isn't, he's saying, God isn't small, God isn't weak, he isn't dominated by anything in creation. Look what he has done. Could any of you have done that? And he didn't need any help doing it. Look at verse 14. Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, taught him knowledge, showed him the way of understanding? Nobody. Nobody. Therefore, I want to say to you, no circumstances should alarm you. You remember the story. Jesus is uh, with his disciples. They are commercial fishermen accustomed to being in boats at sea when storms come up. And uh, the wind arises, the waves break over, the boat begins to fill, and they are anxious for their lives. And Jesus is asleep, you remember, in the back of the boat laying on a cushion. And in a panic, they awake him. Don't you care? And he says to the wind and the waves, peace, be still. 
and all is calm. He has command of everything in creation. Because by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. All were created through him and created for him. And he rules over all. God only is immeasurable. Everything else is small by contrast. That's the first thing you see here. And then Isaiah turns to having thought of creation, perhaps the thing that looms biggest in our world. He turns to the next biggest thing, which is in a way organized humanity in nations. What's more powerful on earth than these And yet, he says, verses 15 through 17, only God is indispensable to the world, and they are not. In our day, people are pretty impressed with what goes on with the great world powers. They cling to the news to find out what's what's happening in the world. The Middle East, of course, is in turmoil. What will the UN do, people say? What will NATO do? What will the US do? Former Secretary of State. Madeleine Albright once said words I I think should cause a shudder to run down our back. She said, the United States of America is the lone indispensable nation in the world. What arrogance to assert that. Think of ancient Assyria. Where is it now? The ancient Egyptians. Where are they now? The ancient Babylonians, all those enemies of Israel, where are they now? What about the ancient Greeks? What about the ancient Romans that persecuted the church? What about America and China and Russia and Iran in this next year or next century? What about, what are these to God is the writer's point. Verse 15, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. And are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Or like a drop in the bucket. Again, the scientists tell us, they estimate, some 326 million trillions of gallons of water in the world. I I don't even know what that means. The nations, he says, are but a drop in a bucket. That makes no difference. Lightweight, inconsequential. But of course, Israel was in awe of them. And even today, the Christian church is often so afraid of them. Nations, after all, do have vast armies and resources. And do influence world events for good or for ill, sometimes in dramatic ways. Yet, the author is saying God doesn't bat an eye at them. Verse 16, even the whole resources of a nation are not worthy of him. You could take Lebanon, verse 16, and it wouldn't suffice for fuel. And it's beasts enough for a burnt offering worthy of this God. Basically, you could wipe out the entire nation of Lebanon, setting all its cedars to fire. Gather all its beasts and offer them, and it wouldn't be worthy of this one. You know, some people think about God, I can take him or leave him. 
They shrug their shoulders. No big deal, they say. What's really important, people will say, is democracy in Egypt or free market capitalism in America. But that's not really the important thing. God is. I wonder if you as a Christian are worried about the kingdom of God on earth. She should be on your heart, of course. Christians being killed in Iran and Iraq, being forced to flee, churches being wiped out, missionaries being imprisoned. It ought to grieve us, but it ought not make us despair for the church. Jesus said, Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not will be given to me. He now has all authority, not only in heaven, but on the earth. And he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. And he is building his church even amidst her persecution. Even organized humanity at its best is nothing to be compared with him. All nations, verse 17, are as nothing before him. And there, by nothing, it doesn't mean that he doesn't care for them. It means they are nothing before him. He's speaking not of their value to him, but their stature in comparison to him. Of course they're valuable because Jesus came to die for people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. But only he is indispensable to the world. Thirdly, if you won't compare God to creation, or if you, if you are comparing and, and doing so unfavorably to creation or to the nations, what about, in the third place, what about idols? What about idols? And here we learn in verses 18 through 20 that only God is uncontrollable by the religious. What's an, what's an idol for? It's basically a way of a person controlling access to their deity. Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare him to? An idol? No, you can't reduce God to time and space like an idol. Think about it. A craftsman, verse 19, crafts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold. A silversmith casts uh, silver chains for it. Uh, if he's too impoverished for gold and silver, what does he do? He, he finds wood that won't rot. He'll, he'll, he'll find something by which to fashion his deity. Why do people do that? Well, it does have its advantages, they think. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. He can't escape from you if you've reduced him to that. He's always with you because that idol commands his presence. You control it. You keep him where you want him. You can see him when you expect to see him. He goes where you go. Some of you know my parents. Unknown to me as a kid, my parents had two idols on the mantelpiece in my home. Dad's not a believer, but dad believes in spirit beings. And he believed in two spirit beings that watched over, in his estimation, our home. And he had replicas made of what he thought they looked like. It's a story for another time. But you know what those two figurines did my entire life? Nothing. Of course, absolutely nothing. They don't speak. 
They don't hear. They only moved when mom got so tired of them, she threw them away to dad's dismay. It was kind of her German Lutheran background, I think, that just, it ate away at her. Got to get rid of those idols. When you make an idol, you make your God small. He becomes little. He becomes domesticated. But not so the God of Israel. Not so Jesus. You can't domesticate him. You can't control him. You can't command him. We ask for things as his own beloved children. And we say, yet not my will, but your will be done. Jesus said when he was on the earth that he was going to go to Jerusalem to be beaten, to suffer, and to be killed. He told his disciples that. And do you remember Peter? Peter said, no, Lord. And Jesus turned to him and said, get away from me, Satan. Why such strong language? Jesus said, because Peter, you have in mind the things of man and not the things of God. Peter, you don't tell me what to do. I do exactly what I want to do. And so it is with our God. He is uncontrollable by the most religious. And in the fourth place, he is unquestionably sovereign, verses 21 to 24. Do you not know it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers? J.I. Packer says, the world dwarfs us all and God dwarfs the world. The world is his footstool above which he sits secure. And all the feverish activity of its billions of people does no more to affect him than the chirping and jumping of grasshoppers in the summer sun does to affect us. Well, that may be true of the common man, we say, but, but come on. What about the movers and shakers, the leaders, the really important people, like presidents and presidents-elect? People like, think of history, Sennacherib, of Assyria, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, Alexander the Great, Nero of Rome. Don't these tyrants dominate and rule and govern the universe? Absolutely not, the author says. Verse 23, who brings? He, he does. God does. He brings princes to nothing. He makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. There is no Hitler or Stalin or Saddam Hussein who can crush God's purposes and plans. There is no Assad or Putin or Kim Jong-un in our day who can destroy the kingdom of God on earth. And there is no Obama or Trump and not even the second coming of Ronald Reagan himself who can usher in the kingdom of God or who can destroy the kingdom of God. These men do not rule the world. 
do not act like they do. Jesus determines the destiny of the world. Verse 24, these others, they are just here today and gone tomorrow. They serve only as it suits God's purposes and only for as long as he determines and at his breath like dandelion seeds blown by a child into the wind, they disappear forever. And so it is with you and I. 70 years, maybe 80. Some of you won't get that. It's gone fast, friends. But God raised Jesus from the dead to live forevermore. And he raised him and he seated him above all things, Ephesians 1, for the good of the church. He is unquestionably sovereign. And the final thing you see about God here in verses 25 and 26 that I want to highlight is that he is invincible in power. And you compare him here to the stars. Verse 25, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? Says the Holy One, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He's thinking of the stars. He who brings out their host or starry host by number, calling them each by name because of the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. Maybe you've been out on a night when you can see So many stars, you can't count them. And you have felt how small and insignificant you are by comparison. Maybe you have uh, felt the power and been fearful of the power of the sun, our own star. Uh, Again, the scientists say it generates energy by nuclear fusion of hydrogen nuclei into helium. I have no idea what that means. In its core, the sun fuses 620 million metric tons of hydrogen every second. Its surface temperature is approximately 9,941 degrees. This is just as best we know. What I do know is this, that a brief glance at the midday sun through unfiltered binoculars can cause permanent blindness. And with the naked eye, permanent blindness happens through UV-induced sunburn-like lesions on the retina within just dozens of seconds. And it is but one song among many in this galaxy. It's not even the strongest we know of. And there are billions of suns across the galaxy. And there are trillions of stars across this universe. And God, he calls them each by name. He is their maker. He is their master. They are all in his will and they do, they are all in his hand and, and they do his will. And what are they for? Well, among other things, Genesis tells us they are for the purpose of giving light and governing seasons. If half of them went missing, you and I probably wouldn't notice unless it included our own and then we wouldn't be here to notice but I would put the rhetorical question to you this way are you not more valuable than many stars you after all not stars are made in God's image it is for you for your sake that God sent his own beloved son to be crucified for your sins to get rid of all the spiritual forces of darkness arrayed against you 
and to bring to you the light of God forever. There is no power at work in your life that is any trouble to Him. Romans chapter 8, Paul says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things future, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The only thing you might say that could stand in your way of his loving concern for you is your sin. And what did he do with that? He buried it under the mountain of his mercy upon the cross of Christ. You are safe in the arms of Jesus now and forever. He never abandons you. He never loses track of you. No one can stand in his way. No one can replace what he can do for you. Only he is incomparably huge, indispensable to the world, uncontrollable by the religious, unquestionably sovereign and invincible in power. And so how does he close? He counsels us. He counsels us. In the first place, of course, he counseled us by saying, do you see? Maybe your God is too small in your estimation. But he is no small being. Maybe you're too big for your britches. And so he counters their theology. He corrects them. He gives them a new vision of who he is as their loving father. And some of you have heard this story as well. But years ago now, our family traveled to Washington, D.C. And one day on the streets, somebody was jingling something in his hand to my son Daniel, 10 steps ahead of us or so. And it made me nervous because it was a very, very strong man who looked like he had worked out a lot in prison and Daniel was just a little kid at the time and so I moved forward quickly to, to get near him and, and said Daniel you let me handle this and I started to engage with this man and, uh, and in just a few brief moments he was spitting in my face yelling at me very upset and I didn't know why and I'm holding at this point, or at least my little kids are holding my fingers. And I'm, I'm doing one of these, you know, like, kids, go find mom. She's, she's over there. Get away. Get away. Get away. And finally, I think there was kind of a crowd and a bit of a commotion. And there was a police officer at every corner. And we were mid-block. And so I don't think he wanted to prolong things. But finally, he did this. And he put it at my forehead with his fingers, you understand. And he said, you're going to get yourself killed. And then he turned around and he walked off. He walked off, crossed the street, police officer up the corner. I wasn't too, honestly, too much concerned after that. I mean, we were in a big crowd of tourists. It was, it was weird, strange, momentarily frightening. But, of course, the family was a little bit shaken. And the youngest, well, you could see that, 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 that Sarah, even hours later, was kind of carrying this weight and so I began to discuss this with her, what had just happened, and, you know, what would happen if this or that or the other had happened. And, you know, she noticed how big he was, and she noticed I couldn't compare, really. And, um, 
And she said, well, Dad, what, I mean, what would have happened? I forget how she worded it, but you know, what would have happened if you'd gotten a fight with him? And I looked at her as the godly Christian minister I am and said, Daddy would have kicked his butt. <laughs> and she did just that. She laughed, and you could see the tension release. Life was easy again. My father's tougher than that guy. We fool them sometimes when they're little. But the point here is God is not too big to fail. And he is not too big to, ca- to not care. Lift up your eyes. He is the answer to all of our problems. Our greatest need is not the fix of our problems. Our greatest need is to trust in him. He is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the universe. He knows no weakness. He has no ignorance. And so he confronts them with the truth about themselves. Verse 30, even youth shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. He speaks the truth in love and he says, you're weak, you're frail. You may not be able to go on, but that doesn't mean God can't go on and that doesn't mean God can't support you. No, he closes, trust in him. All those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. They will get up again when they have fallen. They will go forward with Him. You can face your future with hope and with confidence because He is your loving Father. Your circumstances can't confuse Him, can't befuddle Him, can't stifle him. No, you can't control him. You can't manipulate him. You can't always understand him. And you can't get him to do what you want him to do in every situation. But you can certainly lean on him and hope in him. He's trustworthy. After all, did this incomparable, indispensable, uncontrollable, uh, certainly unquestionably sovereign and invincibly powerful God Creator, go to the cross for you just as he promised. Trust in him. Let's pray. Father, help us. We pray that we would know you better than we do, and that we would see you as you really are, and uh, we would turn to you to be our help and our hope. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Let me invite you to stand and we'll sing.